Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. It was Abraham Lincoln who said this, I would not give much for that man's religion whose cat and dog are not the better for it. What Lincoln meant by that was, very simply, if a religion or a worldview does not have room for animals, does not value animals, that is a religion, a worldview that is not worth your attention. And I'm here this morning to tell you that the Christian religion, the Bible, does indeed affirm and value animals uh, in a very big way. Um, So this is what we're thinking about here this morning as we continue in our series on Christian ethics. We're talking about animal welfare this morning. And it's interesting when you think about those who are at the forefront of leading the cause for the rights or welfare of animals. um, It doesn't seem like Christians really come to mind that often. We think of organizations like PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, But we don't really see Christians. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but that's not generally what we're told. But in history, actually, it's been quite different. That some of the great Christian leaders throughout the church have been champions of the welfare of animals. People such as Charles, uh, no, excuse me, John Wesley, um, great preacher of the 1700s who preached on animal welfare and confronted a practice known as bull baiting, where bulls were tied up and then dogs were unleashed on these bulls and then there were a fight would take place and Wesley was kind of leading the charge against that practice. A guy named William Wilberforce, many of you have heard of him. He's known as the one who um, has uh, worked to abolish the slave trade in Britain in the 1800s, but Wilberforce was also a champion of animal welfare and was involved in founding an organization called the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty of Animals, Cruelty of Animals, uh, William Wilberforce. Even C.S. Lewis uh, was known to be a great animal lover, cats and dogs in his house uh, regularly. He was known to not try to kill his mice, but feed bread to them in his home. And Lewis said this, in justifying cruelty to animals, we put ourselves also on the animal level. Of course, much of his fiction is filled with various uh, animal characters. And maybe one of the most famous uh, individuals in Christian history known to be a supporter of animal welfare is Francis of Assisi uh, from the 13th century, known as the patron saint of animals. And if you see drawings of him, they're very often like this one that you're seeing on the screen, birds and dogs and animals uh, among Francis. Um, So uh, again, we are in this Christian, uh, this uh, sermon series, How Shall We Then Live? A Study of Christian Ethics. We're about halfway through. We get two more sermons after this one, and we've been taking various topics, some of which have been fairly controversial in our country and culture today, and I think this one is no exception. But today it's the question of animal welfare, and the question we want to consider this morning is, is this. Are animals just commodities at our disposal? Are they just objects that we can do with whatever we wish? Or do we as Christians have some kind of moral obligation to animal creatures? 
Is there a moral component? Is there a component of our discipleship as Christians that would necessitate that we take seriously the way we treat animals? That's the question we're looking at today. And Psalm 104 is um, a good one for this particular topic. I think this is probably the passage of Scripture that deals with animals in more detail than any other. Um, This is a creation psalm. It is devoted to God's created works. It's kind of a lengthy psalm. Um, Verses 1 through 9 have to do with God's creation of the earth. And picking up at verse 10, we begin to see God's creation of animals and the way he treats animals and the way he cares for animals. And so I'm going to pick up in verse 10 of Psalm 104, and I'll read through the end of this psalm. So please stand now for the reading of God's word, Psalm 104, starting with verse 10. The psalmist says this, speaking of God, you make springs gush forth in the valleys, they flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode you water the mountain. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly. The cedars of Lebanon that he planted, in them the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows its time for setting. You make darkness and it is night when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you form to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they're filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have been. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. God in heaven, we take these words from this psalm and ask that our meditation now on your word would be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated.
Well, I come to this topic here as one who is indeed a, a lover of animals, although my experience with animals is somewhat limited. I grew up in a suburb, not on a farm, so I don't have a, a lot of knowledge of animals, but grew up in a home with cats and dogs, and I still have two dogs, so here's my two dogs, uh, Riley and Nico. Um, border collies, and I was very pleased in my preparations for this message to find Job chapter 30, verse 1, where Job talks about the dogs of his flock. So Job owned border collies, it seems, uh, dogs, sheep dogs, who um, helped with his flock. So border collies are, are biblical dogs. <laughs> but um, we're looking here at Psalm 104 to consider the place of animals in God's creation. And so, uh, three things I want to point out to you from this psalm. And the first is this, very simply and very obviously from this psalm, God loves animals. It's very clear. Not just here, but, but elsewhere. I'm going to show that to you. I'm going to give a lot of scripture to you here uh, as we look at Psalm 104 and go on to some other passages. But... There are, <clears throat> there are five basic factors that should be taken into consideration when we think about animal welfare. Five, um, five factors that, uh, that animals need and that we as humans are responsible to seek to provide. And almost all of these are found here in this psalm, and so I want to show this to you. The first thing is this. Animals deserve, should have a freedom from hunger and thirst. And so if we look here in, in the psalm, we see that this is certainly the case. Verses 10 and 11, God makes springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. Wild donkeys quench their thirst. God is concerned for the thirst of his creatures. But not just thirst, hunger as well. Um, we have this list of a great variety of animals. Uh, perhaps you noticed that. Um, very wonderful just to see the um, donkeys mentioned in verse 11 and birds in verses 12 and 17. Um, livestock in verse 14. The stork in verse 17. Goats in verse 18. Badgers in verse 18. Lions in verse 21. <laughs> Uh, a great variety of creatures here. And then if you go down to verse 27, the psalmist says this, <clears throat> all of these animals, they all look to you, God, and you give them their food in due season. At just the right time, when, God, uh, when the animals need it, God gives them their food. And then verse 28, we get a little more detail. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand... They are filled with good things. You kind of get this picture like if you've ever taken your children to a petting zoo and they have food that you can get and the children will go up to the little donkeys or ponies and, and they open their hands and, and the donkey comes and, and just eats out of the hand. And that's kind of the picture we're getting of kind of this, the gentleness of God with his creatures and his desire to provide for their food. So freedom from hunger and thirst. God is certainly concerned about that as we can see this in the psalm. Something else to notice as we go through this, that we get the picture here of animals who are um, really by themselves on a mountain somewhere, and God is taking care of them. We don't see here that animals are contributing necessarily to human welfare in any way in this psalm. In, in other words, God 
cares for the animals independent of their utility or independent of any purpose they might serve for us. Of course, they do serve a great purpose for us, as we just heard from Mark. But that's not all that they're, that, that's not the only reason they exist. I mean, God cares for animals on hills that no one will ever see, and God provides for them. So, another factor of consideration, appropriate shelter. Animals should have appropriate shelter. We see that, verse 18. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. God provides rocks for them. Verse 21 and 22, the young lions roar for their prey. They seek food. When the sun rises, they steal away and they lay down, uh, lie down in their dens. They have a place to go. They have a place of refuge, a place of shelter to seek, provided by God. Another factor, freedom to display normal behavior. And we see this in a number of ways in the psalm, as the psalmist takes note of what animals do. Verse 12, what do the birds do? They sing among the branches. They have the freedom to do that. Verse 17, they build their nests. Uh, Verse 20, um, all the beasts are creeping about the forest at night, roaming about as they wish, free to move about. And then verse 28, we see that they gather up the food that God gives them. God provides this food for them, but the animals are the ones who are freely gathering it up. So these animals are free to move about and do as they please, to act in accordance with their natures. Uh, We also see a freedom from fear. This is another factor um, involved in animal welfare, that we should remove them from fearful situations as much as possible. This is a little harder to find in the text, I think, but if you go to verse 29, it says, when you, God, hide your face, the animals are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. So there is a cause for fear among animals, and that's when God, for some reason, hides his face from them. So that's a legitimate place or reason for an animal to be fearful, but you kind of get the implication here that there is no other reason for the animals to fear in this case because they're being cared for by God. He's attentive to their needs, and they're free of fear. And the last thing is prevention and treatment of injury and disease. This is a factor of animal welfare for which we should be concerned. We I can't find this specifically in this passage, um, but we can look to other places in the Bible and see this. For instance, Exodus chapter 23, verses 4 and 5 in the Old Testament law. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden... It's too heavy, you can't get up. You shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall relieve the animal of its suffering. We certainly see this in the most famous story in the Bible about animals, which is Noah and his ark, right? God's going to destroy the earth, and so God commands Noah to get a pair of all the animals and make sure that they're on the ark so that, on the ark so that they can be spared. Not all the animals got on the ark, but a a representation of all the various animal breeds were on the ark so that they 
ultimately would be protected. I went to my veterinarian in preparation for the sermon and talked to him a little bit about this. And uh, he's a Christian man himself. And he says, you know, that, that's really, that's the reason why we do here what we do, because of the Bible's command to us to take care of the animals. So th- this, this responsibility to treat and relieve injury and disease is um, the principle on which veterinary practice is based. And so you know, if you're thinking about being a vet one day, I would, tell you, I would say, do it. This is a, a godly vocation that is pleasing to God and taking up the task of caring for animals. So that's what we see here in Psalm 104. Now to kind of elevate this a little bit, we have to see the psalm in the broad context of the whole Bible from the beginning to the end. And there's a reason why God is displaying this kind of care for the animals. And so if we go back to Genesis, for instance, Genesis chapter 9, speaking of Noah, right after the flood destroys the earth, God, as you know, makes a covenant with Noah. But notice what this says here in Genesis chapter 9, as God is speaking of his covenant. He says, when I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, the sign of his covenant, the the rainbow, the bow, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. I mean, did you know that? That God has not just covenanted with human beings, he has covenanted with the animals. God has covenanted with all creatures. He's made a promise to them that he's not going to destroy them as he did in the flood. And that's why when we look ahead to our future, and that is the new heavens and the new earth, for those who trust in Christ, all of God's redeemed people one day will live forever in the eternal embodied state in a renewed earth. We look to Isaiah 65. Very clearly this is about the new heavens and the new earth. And in verse 25 it says this, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. That's a picture of our future eternal state. So, you know, sometimes children most often ask this question, but a lot of people think about this. Are there going to be animals in heaven? (laughs) And I think the answer is yes, there will be. And by heaven, I don't mean the intermediate state where the souls of Christians are right now with Jesus, but the eternal state after Jesus comes again and the new heavens and the new earth are ushered in. That is going to be a redeemed and perfected earthly existence that is going to contain, I believe, everything that was there in the creation before the fall, and that includes animals. God made a promise to the animals in Genesis 9. And here's a picture in Isaiah 65 of this situation where animals are not at war with one another anymore, but living in peace in the new heavens and the new earth. I mean, we have a lot to look forward to, friends, as Christians, when Jesus comes again. I mean, living on a redeemed, glorified, created order where everything is perfect and all evil is removed and everything that we love in this earth is magnified a millionfold. That's what we have to look forward to, and it involves our relationships with the animals. So God loves animals, and we should too. doesn't mean you have to have a pet, but 
you ought to be a lover of animals. But we need to go to the second point, which is this, that God has placed limits on animals. What do I mean by that? Three things here that we need to caution about the way we regard animals. First of all, animals are not to be worshipped. We do not worship the animals. That was very common among ancient religions of the time that the psalm was written. That They were pantheistic. What that means is they, that they worshipped the created order. They thought God was in everything. So they thought if you wanted to worship God, you had to worship creation and everything in creation, and that would include animals. So there's a lot of ancient religions that did worship animals, and you can see remnants of this throughout the scriptures. Do you remember when Moses was on Mount Sinai and then he came down and do you remember what the people were doing, what they had done? They built a golden calf and bowed down and worshipped it. So that was common among other religions to worship animals. We see this in Romans 1 also where Paul is talking about idolatry, and he says, claiming to be wise, these people became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They made images that represented animals and worshipped them. That's a foolish thing to do, according to the scriptures. If you look here in verse 24... In Psalm 104, look look what the psalmist says. O Lord, how manifold are your works in wisdom. You've made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. The creatures belong to God. There is a distinction between the creator and the creature. A huge gulf between them. God owns them. We are to worship the creator, not the creature. And yet there's a temptation in all of us to look at something in creation and to elevate it to the place of God. So animals are not to be worshipped. There is only one God, and He can be worshipped in only one way, and that is through the work of Jesus Christ in His life, death, and resurrection for those who place faith in Him. That's what we're all called to do, to worship God in that way, but to not worship animals. Secondly, animals are not made in God's image. Another limit that we see placed on the animals. Uh, Genesis 1, as most of you know the story, God creates the entire universe. Um, It says in Genesis 1 that he created all the beasts and the animals. And it says that God pronounced them very good. So God sees animals as good. But then the passage goes on and it says God created male and female. We saw this last week. And God said that they were made in His image. Men and women are made in the image of God, but that is not said of the animals. The animals are good, yes, God says that. They're good, but human beings are better. Human beings are of more value than animals. There's a a, a view or kind of a, a teaching today that we see in the universities promoted by men like Peter Singer at Princeton. It's called speciesism. And the idea is that if you value one species over another, if we value the human species over non-human animals, that that is akin to racism. So to hold that a human being should have a right that an animal doesn't 
is like saying a white person should have a right that a black person doesn't. That's the link that's, that's drawn here. So speciesism is a, is a bad thing in this particular view. Um, but this is a view that is just, it's not biblical. In fact, the Bible is very speciesist. Um, Jesus is a speciesist. I mean, very, very clearly, look at Matthew 10. Fear not, he's saying to his disciples, you are of more value than many sparrows. Not even than just one sparrow, but than, than many sparrows. So it's perfectly appropriate for us to say, as Christians, that human beings should have some rights that animals don't. That's, that's biblical. And based on this idea that men and women are made in the image of God and animals aren't. The last limit is this. <clears throat> animals are not moral creatures. Animals are not moral creatures. I think we see this also in the text. If you go to the very end of Psalm 104 and verse 35, it says, let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. So the psalmist has in mind here human beings who are sinners, human beings who will one day be judged. He's looking forward to judgment day when every human being is going to have to give an account for his or her works. That's part of what it is to be made in the image of God. It's part of what it is to be a human being. You are going to be accountable for your life before God. That's why Jesus is so important because <laughs> through Jesus is the only way we can escape the wrath and condemnation of God. That's our responsibility to respond to what God has done for us in Jesus so we can escape God's judgment. But that is not a responsibility that's placed on the animals. The animals are not accountable for their moral behavior. We don't put dogs in jail for catching and eating rabbits. They're not moral creatures. As an illustration of this, you remember uh, Michael Vick quarterback for the Atlanta Falcons, NFL quarterback, who was arrested and jailed a few years ago for um, organizing a, a dogfighting organization. Um, apparently, they went on Michael Vick's property. They sound, found 52 pit bulls that were all emaciated. They hadn't been fed so that they would be ravenously hungry so that they would fight each other with more energy. And if you've ever seen the pictures, they're really disturbing, the pictures of these dogs after they come out of this fight. Well, Michael Vick was convicted of a crime for that, and he was put in jail for that. And I think it's good for us to ask this question. You know, why are we so repulsed at something like that? Why are we so outraged when we see animals mistreated by human beings? Why? And I think there's two reasons. And one is this, it's that we expect better of human beings. We expect better from men and women created in the image of God, moral creatures. We expect human beings to act like human beings and not like animals. That's what C.S. Lewis was saying earlier. When we are cruel to animals, we become like animals. But there's a distinction between human beings and animals. And when human beings treat animals cruelly, they're acting like animals. They're acting in a way that's beneath their dignity as human beings. And we're outraged, and rightfully so. We are indignant at that. 
there is something inherently dehumanizing about treating animals with cruelty. It makes us less human. It makes our hearts cold. It makes us more likely then to treat other human beings in cruel and inhuman ways. So that's why this is so important. But that's one reason I think while we're outraged at Michael Vick, we expect more of him as a moral creature. But here's another reason why we're outraged, I think, and that's because we know instinctively that there's something innocent about animals. There's something kind of pure about them. They're, they're, they're helpless in a way. They're vulnerable. In, in many respects, they're weak and they're dependent on us and on God, of course. And when we are cruel to them, when we don't take their needs seriously, we are outraged because we see it as an injustice. We see somebody who is in power, human beings, taking advantage of the weak and vulnerable, and we're outraged. I mean, it's just there's hardly anybody that doesn't have some kind of sense of outrage when they see an animal abused. And I think it's just a wonderful display of the innate moral sense that we all have that justice should be served and that that is an unjust thing. The innocent should not be punished. The innocent should not be dealt with cruelly. And can you see how this kind of starts to push us in the direction of the gospel? Isn't it wonderful that God would choose an animal to link to Jesus Christ? Do you know that, that God does that? I mean, does that, maybe that kind of shocks you. You're kidding me. Jesus compared to an animal? Yeah. He's the Lamb of God. The Bible says it over and over again. God uses the picture of a lamb to tell us something about our Savior. What is a lamb? A lamb is a symbol of innocence, a symbol of gentleness. That's our Savior. Gentle and innocent, without fault, blameless, fully obedient, to the Father in every way, and yet treated with great cruelty, hung on a cross, and killed for your sins and for mine. Some differences there, of course. Jesus was not a victim. He went to the cross willingly. Jesus was not ultimately defeated because he rose from the dead and he lives now. But nonetheless, Jesus is the Lamb of God. First Peter, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. One more thing. Let's consider how, how do we apply this practically. What are some things we can do? God has charged us to care for the animals. He loves the animals. He's placed certain limits on the animals, but he's given us a responsibility. And so we see this in Genesis 1, the creation mandate, God's command of the human race, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the heavens, and every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, understand what the word dominion means. Some people have misinterpreted that to think that this gives us license to do whatever we want with the animals. But the word dominion has more of a meaning of stewardship and caretaking. 
It's not an excuse to exploit or abuse or dominate. That This is a call for us to care for the animals. And this is given not just to the church, but to the entire human race. And then we see in Proverbs 12, which is just kind of an application, I think, of the creation mandate, the righteous care for the needs of their animals. It's a mark of righteousness to be one who watches and cares for their pets and animals. So, so how do we apply this? I, I have, you know, we could talk a lot about this, and in your life groups, please talk about this in more detail. I have just a few suggestions. One is just very straightforward, very really obvious, but maybe you've never heard this kind of an application from a, a pulpit before, but you, know, you need to be wise and careful and thoughtful about the way you choose your pets and the way you care for your pets. You need to think carefully about whether, if you're thinking about getting a pet, you need to think carefully about whether you're going to be able to care for that pet, whether you're going to have the time to give to that pet, whether you're going to have the, the money to get that pet to the doctor, get his or her exams. Pets can be expensive. There's a big difference, for instance, between having a border collie and having a, a cat. That's entirely different. I've owned border collies for a long time. They're high-energy dogs. They're intelligent dogs. They need attention. They need constant stimulation. And if they don't get it, you are not going to like it. I had a border collie 20 years ago. She was uh, less than two years old. I thought she was old enough. I went to work. I wasn't married at the time and just let her loose in the house. And I came home, and she had torn up about a 10 by 10 square foot section of my carpet, just pulled it up off the floor. And I had furniture with like wood armrests, and she chewed up all the armrests, and she, she chewed up my Bible. Feeding on the word, I like to say. She was a <laughs> Christian dog, Christian dog. But man, I was, I was so angry with my dog, and I'm, I'm ashamed that I got so angry because it was my fault. I shouldn't have let her run through the house. I should have been giving her more attention. It was her way of saying, you're not giving me enough to do. <laughs> so be careful before you choose your pets. Make a wise choice. Uh, get them spayed or neutered to decrease overpopulation. Consider adopting from shelters and humane societies and rescue services. There's a lot of border collie rescue services because people get border collies and they can't handle them and they give them up. And that's kind of a cruelty to animals. Sometimes animals are euthanized because people overestimated their ability to take care of their pets. Get your pets their exams. Do the preventive meds. They're expensive, but, but do them. They care a way, this is a way to care well for your animals. The other area is in the area of food. I haven't mentioned the issue of vegetarianism here. I know there are vegetarians here in this church. Personally, I'm not a vegetarian. Totally respect the reasons for those of you who are. I do believe the scripture permits the eating of meat. Genesis 9, verse 3, Acts 10, verses 12 and 13. We see Jesus eating fish. So I think it is permissible to eat meat. Um, but we are living in a different kind of culture. We're not nearly as agrarian as we once were. And so there is a huge distance now between the consumer and those who prepare our food. It used to be that you would know what was happening on the farm with the animals who would eventually become your food, but we don't know that anymore. It's happening out of sight, and so it's harder to understand that. 
And so um, I know there's been a lot of criticism of factory farms, for instance, that have sprung up in the last 50 years. They have been accused of being cruel to animals. Um, I'm not going to make any comment on that. I'm not a farmer. All I would say is this, that it probably would be a good thing for us to try to educate ourselves a little more as to where our food is coming from and how it's being prepared. And one way you can do that is by going to farmer's markets, because then you can meet the farmer and you can ask him or her questions and you can know whether the animals that are now your food are being well cared for. And so that's something Mary and I are going to try to incorporate into our schedule. Um, the Yorktown Farmer's Market, I think, is done for the season, I'm pretty sure, but there is one at Minatrista through the winter months, um, third Saturday, 9 a.m. to noon of every month, third Saturday, 9 a.m. to noon at, uh, at Minatrista. So I'd recommend that to you. The last thing I want to say is, uh, man, we're going along again, but um, I want to show you this video. Every living thing is, uh, is an organization that has um, started... I'm not sure when it started, but it's a group of evangelicals who have gotten together and have prepared a statement on responsible care for animals. And uh, Al Mohler from the Southern Baptist Convention has signed it. Michael Williams at Covenant Seminary. Jim Spiegel here has signed it as well. And uh, they have a website. And there's a book here um, that is very good. We have a free copy of this book, just one copy. Sorry, just one, but it's free on the book table, so... First come, first served, if you want a copy of that book. Um, also some little cards there at the Welcome Center that gives you some information about this organization. But I'm going to show you, close here by just showing you this four-minute video. It's produced uh, by this organization. And uh, then we'll close in song. He, he knows when a sparrow falls. I mean, I always, I love that verse. And... If he knows when a sparrow falls, well, I think he, he knows about all the other animals too, as well as us, and it matters to him. They're his creation, and he gave them to us. So it all starts right on the grass, uh, with a cow eating grass. She meets a bull, she has a calf, and, and you know, and, and the calf is born. And really, this is, this is creation. I mean, that's God. And, and, and I feel that. I really feel that, and I, and I really believe that we owe it to our Creator to, to do the very, very best that we can. My husband and I got Lily from the animal shelter. I really believe that God calls us to um, protect and preserve His creation. So it was really important to both of us to get a dog that didn't have a home. I was thinking about how animals in general really remind us that we're not alone. We think we're alone, and we're not. And all animals, to me, are a reminder, just a little wink. You're not as alone as you think. You know, the Bible reflects God caring about the animals. And when he makes covenants with humans, he makes covenants with animals. In the beginning, he entrusted human beings to take care of them. Really, our first job description in Genesis was to, to have dominion, which doesn't mean to dominate. Uh, we're, we're to reflect the kind of care towards the animal kingdom that God extends towards us. I decided that I really wanted to start to shift my operation back to what we would call a more sustainable operation that respects the animal, God's gift of, of, of the environment, of, of our land and our, and our place. And I don't think that we get to play God. I don't think we get to decide, oh, this living thing 
doesn't deserve my attention, but that living thing does. They've all come from God, and it's just natural to take care of something that is so precious. We don't want to worship the animals. We worship the Creator. But we are the stewards over the animals and stewards over the earth. And if we are in charge of an animal, we owe them good care. I'm happy to see the way that we can love one of God's creatures in our own home by adopting Lily. And we get to see God's restorative work in taking that life and making it really meaningful and special. Well, when I eat, I, I don't eat meat. And Paul, he says in Romans 14 that some people have a conviction against eating meat and some people don't, and we have to just respect each other. But there are principles to live by, and the principle is that um, we are to care for the earth and the animal kingdom. I mean, to be a disciple is to be one who's disciplined, right? And so to be a disciple of Jesus means that you're willing to give up some conveniences if it will make, bring your life more in alignment with God's ideal. There is a rich Christian tradition of concern for God's creatures. From reformers like William Wilberforce, to theologians like C.S. Lewis, to contemporary pastors like Billy Graham. Christians have heeded scriptures such as Job 12 verse 10 when it declares, For the life of every living thing is in his hand, and the breath of every human being. Evangelical leaders have written a statement on the responsible care for animals. It's a document that outlines our beliefs, understandings, and resolutions to our call from our Creator to responsibly care for animals as informed by Scripture and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. To be a part of this restorative work, we encourage you to review the statement, consider joining other evangelical voices and signing it, and click over to our Resources tab to engage in our year-long Every Living Thing campaign. Yeah, well, you know, St. Francis said that we tend to treat people the way that we treat animals. In treating animals more respectfully, we will treat people more respectfully. Join the conversation today to help care for every living thing.